Good morning. All right, let's begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for an opportunity to study and to come to know you better and to share your love and truth with, with the world around us. We ask that your spirit will join us, your angels will fellowship with us, and that we will draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in the uh, quarterly, the book of Job, and the title this week is Intimations of Hope. Intimations of Hope. In the memory text, Job thirteen sixteen says, He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. What does it mean, the Bible, Bible text this week? Should we take it literally? Well, the Bible said it. I believe it. That's all there is to it. If it says it, that's the way it is. Or do we think about it? Is this verse, this Bible verse, a statement of cosmic reality? Eternal truth? That's the way it is? Or is it a statement that merely reveals Job's understanding and Job's perspective, the way Job was thinking? Well, let's ask the question. Let's test it. It says, here's the statement, a hypocrite could not come before God. Have intelligent beings who were hypocrites ever come before God? How many hypocrites came before Jesus and Jesus himself identified them to their face as hypocrites? Did that ever happen more than once? And he called them such. Is Jesus God or do we not think he's God? So at least in that sense, hypocrites have come before God. How about in heaven, the eternal glory of God? Can hypocrites come before God in heaven? Yes. Did Lucifer in heaven at some point become a hypocrite? Somebody who was claiming to have the best interest of the intelligent beings in mind while he was seeking to undermine God and what was best for the... So was he a hypocrite at some point? And even after he was out of heaven, did he come walking from to and fro on the earth, claiming a better way than God still, and alleging God wasn't doing things the right way? So how do we apply this insight Is every passage of Scripture a revelation of eternal truth, or are there many passages of Scripture that are merely the the record of what a person was thinking, their ideas, their struggles, their beliefs? If this is so, what does it mean for how we understand Scripture? Should we take the approach that is very common that we find, follow it blindly. We don't think the scripture said it. I believe it. That settles it. We find a Bible text to, to, to say something. We just do it thoughtlessly. Or do we actually think, wait a second. Some, sometimes things in scripture aren't even inspired. How about this? 1 Corinthians seven twenty-five through 31. This is scripture, not me. Paul writing. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord. But I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it was, uh, if it were not theirs to keep, those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Is this passage a directive from God? Think about it. Paul himself said, I don't have a direction from God on this. I have no command from the Lord, he said. Or So is this passage merely Paul's personal perspective, his best judgment, his best insight, his best discernment, telling us from his human understanding what he thinks is best? When I read the Job thing, I think it differently. I think that what he's trying to say is, if you think you're a hypocrite you, and you come before God, you cannot be a hypocrite in front of God. God will see right through you. There's no way that you can be a hypocrite and come before God expecting to keep that, that status. I, I, would say, um, I would say that, let's test that one. Did, did Lucifer keep his hypocritical status when he came before God? Or did he lose it? 
Well, God, he never was a hypocrite for God. He wasn't? No, because God already saw through him. He knew what he was doing. But he was still being a hypocrite. To the angels, he yeah. was. So he was still a hypocrite. Yeah, he was. So, so a hypocrite. See, so I guess it depends on what we define as hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who presents themselves as one thing when they're really something else. But you're saying that a hypocrite is when somebody else believes something. No, that's not what a hypocrite is. That's when somebody else is deceived by them. The Lord is never deceived by the hypocrite. That's to be sure. But just because he's not deceived doesn't make them hypocritical. Okay. Well, that makes what she's saying makes sense, though, in the sense of Job. Just as I'm righteous, you know, God will see through me. God knows me more than, than anyone else. I can approach him. So I like that view of it. So he's saying, hey, I'll put myself before God and he'll know that I'm not a hypocrite. Correct. Okay. That way of saying it would be wonderful. But it's also um, not true that one couldn't be on the other side of it, where I, where I was suggesting that one couldn't be a hypocrite and still come before God because that's happened. It's kind of how you define coming before God. That will affect exactly. passage. If we take it as coming before God with a desire to seek God's wisdom, then yes, but, but if we take it very, very, literally. you know, literally coming before God, can you actually come before God? And I'm really trying to, and I love what you guys are doing because you guys are actually kind of supporting what I'm suggesting here, that you're not taking Scripture concretely. You're thinking about the underlying meaning of the Scripture. And that's the beauty of what's supposed to happen when we do Scripture. If we take it literally, concretely, well, the Bible says you can't come before the Lord if you're a hypocrite, then they can't. And so you guys are proving, no, there's other ways to understand that. And that's exactly what, what, what I'm trying to challenge you to do. So you're doing awesome. That's, that's great. Back to the point about Paul's quote, though. Was Paul correct? What's time short? The, earth, the world was about to end. Christ was about to return. Pardon? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that your life is only going to live 60 to 70 years. So since you're only going to live 60 to 70 years, which is a short life, don't marry. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the earth is about to end. Second coming is about to happen. Therefore, don't marry. That's what the context is. Yes. Time is short, not your personal life expectancy. Yeah. I'd have to go back and look at the time in which he spoke this, but... There, 60, 65 AD. But where he was, was it appropriate that those individuals who are in the middle of a war or some situation should not marry? It may have been. The, He's writing to the Corinthians. Not it to may the, have been very appropriate, but not to us. Okay. He's writing to the Corinthians. Otherwise, none of us would be here. Well, that was my next point. <laughs> the world wasn't about to end. And was it wise counsel for all Christians in all places who were single to stay single and not have Christian families back in 70 AD? What would have happened to the Christian movement if that would have happened? It would have died out. Okay? So the point I'm making here is that you can read Scripture. May have died out. May have died out, yeah. They may have taken the actual gospel to the rest of the world, and Christ may have come by then. We well say don't know. If Paul was incorrect on this topic, and I think he was incorrect on the, the timing of the second coming, and you can see this in other places, and when you, when you get your mind around that Paul did not have insight that the second coming wouldn't happen in his lifetime, he thought it would. He did not have that wisdom. And therefore, he writes things in other places like Christ is at the right hand of the Father in the most holy place in heaven because that's where Christ will be right before the second coming. But he thought the time frame was different. So we can find some understanding of why he writes certain things. People miss that. Then they attack the whole message of the sanctuary and so forth because Paul wrote it. He was at the right hand of the Father. But that's because I think he, he wasn't correct on this timing issue. He also wasn't correct, in my view, to give wisdom, give the perspective that all Christian single people should remain single. Do you think that's wise? That's why he said, and I think it's beautiful, I have no command from the Lord. This is not a Lord's command. This is his personal opinion. So if Paul was incorrect on this, does that mean though Paul was not inspired? Doesn't mean that at all. Paul was inspired. Was Peter incorrect on who he was socializing with at one point in time? And Paul had to correct him publicly to his face because he was incorrect. Does that mean Peter was not inspired? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Where I'm leading you to understand is that God's inspired spokespersons, apostles, prophets are finite human beings that, that do not have all knowledge of all subjects through all eternity. They have inspiration and wisdom on certain topics, but they remain finite beings. And on topics they have not been given direct inspiration on, they can make human mi mistakes or errors on just like any other human can. 
And if you ever read Ellen White's writing, she said, God alone is infallible. The rest of us are fallible, including his prophets. And we've got two examples here where Paul himself acknowledges this is not his, God's, God's directive, but his own perspective, and where Peter was wrong and had to be corrected. What about others who've been gifted with the gift of prophecy? Could they be wrong on certain topics or perspectives? Could they write things with good motives, with good intentions, but actually not be accurate in their own understanding of what's happening? Could that be? Some of you look uncomfortable right now. Yes. Jesus even corrected about what Moses said about, you know, it says not to kill, but he says to be angry with your brother. He went a little further and explained it, and it wouldn't have been the way that they would have understood it at that time. There's another one. How about Peter when Peter in the upper room says to Jesus, no way, and Jesus says to Peter, get ye behind me, Satan. Well, Peter must be must no longer be one of God's apostles. No, he was, but he was clearly wrong on that point. Clearly wrong on that point. Are some of you uncomfortable with the idea that you can't just read an inspired person's writings? Notice I said an inspired person's writings. You know how inspiration works? God inspires a person. God does not dictate to the person what is to be written. The person selects their own ways and own words and own illustrations to give the wisdom that they've been inspired with. And sometimes people write things that are uninspired. I'll give you a simple example. I think we'd all agree. If you look at Ellen White's writings, there are many places she wrote out grocery lists. Do we think those were inspired by the Lord? And we should get those grocery lists and we should buy the same grocery she did. Especially the oysters. <laughs> you follow my point. There's many things that a person can write that aren't directly inspired, even though the person's inspired. In our church's case, 1844, for example, was a misinterpretation of what was really happening. See, one of the reasons that people get uncomfortable with this line of thinking is that when we're young, literally children physiologically, but also mentally, emotionally, Paul talks about this in Hebrews 5, you should be on meat, but you're still on milk, you're spiritually young. When we're young, we get a sense of security, a sense of safety, makes us feel safe when we trust somebody in authority. Somebody, Mommy said it, daddy said it, teacher said it, pastor said it, pope said it, general conference said it, somebody said it that I can trust, Ellen White said it, the Bible said it, some authority, we have surrendered our judgment to some external authority and we don't have to worry now because of some authority that we trust has told us the right answer. Now we can feel safe. And this is childish. But it's we understand psychodynamically why people do this. And in much of religion and religions of the world, regardless of religions of the world, you find that this is why people surrender their thought and they will create things like, well, you know, God said, you know, God's ways aren't my ways. I just trust. I just trust. It takes away anxiety. They don't have to worry. They have their little box. They have a little system of beliefs. They live inside that box and it makes them feel safe. Even if they're doing things that are contradictory to Christ's ways of doing things. What is the primary purpose of Scripture? The primary purpose, primary. Scripture is a revelation of God to man. It is recorded history of the battle between God and his methods of truth, love, and freedom against Satan and his methods of lies, selfishness, and coercion. It is a history documenting how deviations from God's design destroy and God through Christ heals. So, Scripture is intended, get your mind what I'm about to say now, Scripture is intended not as a rule book of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned, but a window. Scripture is a window into history to help us look and see how the two methods actually work and the outcomes that occur when the two methods are applied so that we can determine who we're going to trust and whose methods we're going to choose. You look through history and you see these two antagonistic principles warring through lives of people. And and you see God's action through time and place. Sunday's lesson, whatever one wants to say about the man Job, one can't say that he was going to sit there amid his sorrow and quietly listen to what his friends were throwing at him. On the contrary, much of the book of Job 
consist of Job fighting, Job's fighting back against what he knows is a mixture of truth and error. As we saw, these men were not showing much uh, tact and sympathy. They were claiming to speak for God and justifying what happened to Job. And basically they said he was getting what he deserved or that he deserved even worse. The lesson authors suggest that Job's friends were presenting a mixture of truth and error. What is the truth and the error to which the lesson refers? And if you look back in last week's lesson, the lesson last week said that the error from Job's friends was their alleging that he was being punished by God when the truth was that he was not being punished by God. So that was the error, alleging that God was punishing Job. But the truth, according to the lesson, was that God actually does punish. He just wasn't punishing Job. Is this really true? Is there alleged truth that God does punish and must punish and is required to punish a truth? Or are they caught up in a, in a cosmic a lie that goes all the way back to the inception of sin in heaven? Well, Desire of Ages 761, you know this quote. I love this quote. About the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed and justice was inconsistent with mercy. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Desire of Ages 761. This has been Satan's allegation all along, that if you break God's rule, God's law, and Satan's version of how reality works, God's law is nothing but a system of rules with no inherent consequence, and therefore God is the source of inflicted punishment. He's required to do so. That's Satan's version all along. So the underlying argument for God as, as required to punish sin is an attack against God's law, that God's law functions no different than the types of laws sinful beings make, rules, without inherent consequence, rather than seeing God as creator. And you know, one of the core messages of the Adventist church was that we were to call people back to worship creator worship, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. And part of creator worship is recognizing his laws are the laws upon which reality are built. And deviations from those are inherently destructive. You can't live outside of harmony with how God constructed reality to work. But if you go the other direction and you buy into this idea that God must punish sin, then this leads people to shift their fear of sin, which is deviation from the design. So you should be afraid to jump off the Empire State Building. You should be afraid to tie a plastic bag over your head. You should be afraid to eat cyanide. You should be afraid to jab a pencil in your eye. You should, I mean, there's lots of things you should fear. And every one of those are deviations from the design because it's destructive. You should be, you should be afraid to cheat on your spouse. Not because your spouse will catch you. No. But because what it does to you, it corrupts you, it hardens you, it warps you. It's destructive. You should be afraid to smoke cigarettes. But instead, Satan has got this idea in Christian thought, in in world thought, really, that the problem is breaking a rule, and the rule giver then must inflict proper punishments. Thus, we shift our fear from the the consequence of deviating from God's design, what the destructiveness it brings to us and the people we love. Instead, we become afraid of of the lawgiver, the one who's created reality. We're afraid of him instead. And thus, it undermines our ability to trust him. This is the big shift when you, when you don't understand the law correctly. Jim, what do you think it means then at the end of Job when it says, uh, Job 42, starting with verse 7, after, after the Lord said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take the, you know, so on and sacrifice. And then it says, my servant Job will... <coughs> I will accept this prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. So what's your question? My question is, what does God mean when he says, don't deal, he won't, and if Job will pray for you, I'll accept it and not deal with you according to your folly. So their, their folly, what's their folly? Their folly is, you break rules, God must punish. You don't do what's right. The lawgiver has to punish. That's why you're, we know you're a sinner, Job, because you're being punished now. So that's, and so their folly is their misunderstanding of reality. And God says, I'm not going to operate in your foolishness by, you've been saying wrong things about me. You've been, you've been actually not a friend of Job. You've been an enemy to Job trying to undermine him. You've been telling lies about me, which is a deviation from my design, bearing false witness, but I'm not going to deal with you as you think reality works, meaning I'm not going to use my power to punish you for that. I'm not going to deal with you according to your foolishness, your folly. I'm not going to do it because that's not how I work. And so he didn't. Uh, first selected message, 235. I won't read the whole quote because I've said it before. But Ellen White's 
quote, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for the sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result and so forth and so on. They cut themselves off from the, the channels of blessing and the sure result is ruin and death. This is design law. This is what happens when we sin. And God has to act. When you understand design law, then God acts to stop the destruction that unremedied sin brings and to heal and restore his creatures. Lest if God doesn't act, Sin destroys what he loves, you and me. Thus God acted. Go ahead. We covered some of this before. But what, and, and we mentioned about Job sacrificing for his children. Why did God have Job sacrifice for others? He didn't. See, that's an assu- there was an assumption. We're going to get to assumptions in a moment. You made an assumption that God had Job sacrifice. No, he didn't. God didn't have him do that. Job did that. That's Job's perspective. That's Job's initiation. That's Job's action. That's not God. You don't find anywhere in the scripture where God tells Job to sacrifice for his kids. It doesn't happen. No, but didn't he tell him to sacrifice for these other people? Right. Yeah, the one his I friends? said. said okay. So go take bowls and do this and, and pray for your friends. You know, go and have Job pray for you and I'll forgive you because Job is praying. So what, what is the witness there? What's the metaphor? What's the, if we put the scripture together, do the blood of bulls and goats have any benefit for the sinner, according to Hebrews? No. So what's the point then? Who's he dealing with? He's dealing with Job's friends. Who are Job's friends? Job's friends have a view of God, that God is the kind of God that's angry and wrathful and punishes. God just confronted them and said, look, you guys are wrong. Job is right. What's that going to do in their mind? Their mind, they're going to feel, oh, no, the God that we think God is, he's going to be mad. He's going to have to punish us now. God says, relieve their misunderstanding. Bring them peace. Sacrifice for them so they'll know I'm not mad at them. I'm not. I don't need it, but they need it so they won't be terrified of me. That's what's happening. Look at the context. Even though God says, I am angry with you. <laughs> I'm angry with you and your two friends. Oddly, there are actually four friends, and he doesn't really decry the youngest last one. But the first three, he says, we're wrong, and I'm angry at you. Okay, angry meaning what? I'm, I'm going to use my power to inflict harm upon you? Or angry in the same sense that a parent, you've got, two, you've got several children. One of your older children is bringing drugs to your younger kids and telling them how it's good for them and deceiving them into to doing IV heroin. Um, do you want to now go and get a gun and shoot your child or get, get thumbnails and, and torture them that are doing this? Or are you angry at what they're doing, but you still love the child? Disappointed. Yeah, and God is angry because what these guys are doing are misrepresenting him. They're hurt. They're, they're harming. They're not helping. But he doesn't have any need or desire to inflict pain and suffering. In fact, you don't have to do that to the child who's doing IV heroin because they're destroying themselves too. But you're angry at what they're doing because it's so destructive. Okay, this, this is, and, and the way we can get to these answers is when I'm answering these questions, I'm not answering them with a single Bible text concretely taken. That text has to be incorporated into the whole tenor of scripture and understanding God's design laws, law of love, law of liberty, and how things actually function and work. And then we say, well, then why would he speak that way? Well, does a parent ever threaten a child? Child's riding a tricycle down on their driveway towards the street. A truck is coming. This is an unruly child. They're, they're children that are maybe a little rebellious. Don't listen when you say, hey, stop, Joey. There's some kids that don't stop. Do you threaten at that point? If you don't stop, I'm going to beat your bottom. Do you threaten? Might you sound angry? Might your voice sound angry? Might you raise your voice? And they don't stop. They get hit by the car. And what do you do? You get your belt out and beat them, right? <laughs> of course you don't. They do stop. You still don't beat them. You see this happening all through Scripture. So, back to the point, when we understand design law, if we deviate from that, it's destructive. We're destroying ourselves. You see this at Sinai. They're having an orgy around a golden calf. God thunders. Moses, right there at the scene, says there's no need to be afraid. Why is he thundering? Because they're destroying themselves. They're running over a cliff. Stop destroying your minds and hardening your hearts and destroying your souls and corrupting your characters. Stop. Listen. And so God has to act, because if he doesn't act, they're only... Result of unremedied sin. What's the only outcome of unremedied sin? Not execution. Death. And so God acts, and here's God's action. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God took actions, and his actions have always been the actions that love judged would be best at that point, place, time, to slow the spread of sin and to bring healing. That's his actions. 
So here's an historical quote that I wanted to share with you guys this morning because it kind of puts this in perspective. Old Testament Times, Review and Herald. This is uh, uh, talking about Old Testament Times. Review and Herald, July 17, 1900. For centuries, God looked with patience and forbearance upon the cruel treatment given to his ambassadors at his holy law prostrate, despised, trampled underfoot. He swept away the inhabitants of the Noatian world with a flood. But when the earth was again peopled, men drew away from God and renewed their hostility to him, manifesting bold defiance. Those whom God rescued from Egyptian bondage followed in the footsteps of those who had preceded them. Cause, cause was followed by effect. What kind of a law is that? This is design law. Cause was followed by effect. The earth was being corrupted. Why? Because choices. Keep going. A crisis had arrived in the government of God. A crisis in the government of God. The earth was filled with transgression. The voices of those who had been sacrificed to human envy and hatred were crying beneath the altar for retribution. All heaven was prepared at the word of God to move to help, uh, to the help of his elect. One word from him, and the bolts of heaven would have fallen upon the earth, filling the earth with fire and flame. God had but to speak, and there would have been thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and destruction. The heavenly intelligences were prepared for a fearful manifestation of almighty power. Every move was watched with intense anxiety. The exercise of justice was expected. Pause. Pause right here. The exercise of justice was expected. What view did these intelligences, these angels in heaven, have of justice and what were they expecting? I, I, we, we already talked about the quote earlier. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed, that every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan, that idea, the evil one put out in the intelligences of heaven. They have a distortion now by what justice looks like. They're expecting the manifestation of power to put down rebellion. So, next sentence. The exercise of justice was expected. The angels looked for God to punish the inhabitants of the earth. Where did they get that idea? If you put all of the writings together, they got it from Satan when he said all rebellion must be punished. This is Satan's view. The angels are infected with it. Even though they're so loyal, they think this is what justice looks like. Next sentence. But, what's that word going to tell you? They looked for God to punish the inhabitants of the earth. But, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I will send my beloved son, he said. Amazing grace. Christ came not to condemn the world but to save the world. Herein is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The heavenly universe was amazed at God's patience and love. Why was the heavenly universe amazed? Because they misunderstood God's law. They've been buying into Satan's distortion about what, how God functions and what justice looks like. Next sentence, after being amazed by his patience and love. To save fallen humanity, the Son of God took humanity upon himself. So they sent the Son. God sent the Son to do what? To save fallen humanity, the Son of God took humanity upon himself. To save the fallen humanity from what? At whose direction was the Son of God becoming incarnate? Whose plan was being carried out by the Son? I seriously want an answer. God of love. This was the Father's plan. Most people miss this. They think the Son loved us so much. For God so loved us. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, we can be the Son came to fulfill the Father's purpose to save us. From what? As many Christians would teach, from what the Father will do to you if you don't let him save you. To save you from himself. That's a lie. Jesus was carrying out God's will to save the fallen race from what happens when beings deviate from God's design, his law. And what happens when we deviate? We separate ourselves from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Sadly, the lesson authors, as many Christian leaders, are so caught up in the distortion over the nature of God's law, and they think that God's law functions like the laws we make, and therefore God they teach is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death. It's time in human history for Christians all over the world, in my view. It's time. This is the point in history we're called for to stand up and say, no, God is not like this. 
God is not like Satan has made him out to be, and God is not required to inflict punishment. He just has to, if he does nothing, we die. God, who is love, intervened to heal and to restore and to save. The last paragraph says, Notice also, Job says that not only are these men talking lies, they are talking lies about God. That's interesting in light of what happens towards the end of the book itself, Job 42.7, which was read a moment ago. Surely it would be better not to speak than to say things that are wrong. Who among us hasn't experienced how true that is? But it seems that to say something, say things that are wrong about God is much worse. The irony, of course, was that these men actually thought they were defending God and his character against Job's bitter complaints. Irony. Yes, it's ironic that people could think that they were teaching truths about God while they're misrepresenting him. We, we don't ever see that today, do we? So what's wrong with this idea? Excuse me, what, what about the idea that it would be better not to speak than to say things that are wrong? This, uh, this is a trap question, so be careful. Doesn't it depend on your attitude? If one has the attitude that they're teachable, they're willing to be persuaded by evidence, that they are willing to listen and understand, then is it okay to share one's understandings, even if those understandings are wrong, like Nicodemus when he came to Jesus? He didn't have right understandings, and he talked to Jesus about it. He didn't just keep it to himself. Who would want us to think it is better to to say silent in error than to seek to discuss our ideas in order to remove the errors in light and replace it with truth. So don't buy into the idea that uh, it's better to say silent than to speak in error if one has a willingness to learn, to examine evidence, to reprocess their thinking, understanding we're finite, and know a finite human being has all knowledge, and we all can grow, and we're supposed to be advancing and learning in the truth. We have that idea. It's okay in that, with that attitude to say, this is my current understanding of things, but you know what? If it's not right, show me a better way. Show me more truth. Show me more evidence and persuade me. That's, that's okay. It's the only way to work it out. But... It is true if one is closed-minded, has no desire to learn, believes they are right and won't examine evidence, and won't consider ideas different than their own, then it's better for them not to speak. So it's not just a blanket statement. It really depends on the heart and mind of the, of the person. I love this quote. First select the message is 411. Those who cannot impartially examine the evidence of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. I love that quote. Monday's lesson, what do you think of the title? Though he slay me. It comes from Job thirteen fifteen. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. It can be understood in a couple of different ways. It can be understood in the sense of God is a source of inflicted punishment and death. He's all powerful. I'm just but a worm and uh, he's all powerful. I choose to side with him because there's, because he's the most powerful anyway. And I just, it's, it's no other real reasonable choice. I'll side with him and hope for the best. Yes, Wendell? The translation is markedly different if you go through more than one translation for this text. Do you have a couple? Want to share them with us? Good news translation. I've lost all hope. So what if God kills me? I'm going to state my case to him. So, and you keep going through multiple translations. The, I think the Hebrew here is, is um, somewhat variable because it, the spectrum of, you know, the 16 translations we have on the, I, you know, electronic versions or whatever is, is markedly different. So read that one from Good News again. I've lost all hope. So what if God kills me? I'm going to state my case to him. Everything that could possibly bad happen to Job, that was the only thing that hadn't yet happened. Perspective. All the versions you're looking at, does any of them suggest a different core idea? I I think that um, some of them, and I'd have to, I I can't find it quickly, but had the idea that even if he died, yet he would trust in him. Okay. Or that he believed his case to be true. So let's go with the common version. Which is the common version, which is the one I think we read here, yet, uh, though he slay me, yet will I trust him or have hope in him, um, if he kill me. This is the common way it's most, most commonly put forth. One way to understand that is the way I said already. I'm nothing but a worm. He's all powerful. There's no one else to trust other than him, so I'll give it a shot and see what happens. Hope for the best. But there's another way. Like a soldier in combat with a wise and trusted commander. One could say, even though my commander sends me on a mission that will result in my death, I will trust him, because I know my commander would never do that unless it were for some cause that I would gladly sacrifice myself for. 
I don't need to know the entire battle strategy. I only need to know my commander. And no, he is wise and absolutely trustworthy. Lord, send me. If my life serves you, send me into the breach. There's a way to understand it that way, too. I don't know why this is happening. I can't see the whole battle plan. But I know my commander would not sacrifice my life pointlessly. And we're in a war. Are we in a war? Think of Stephen right here. God could have miraculously spared Stephen. He could have sent an angel to to stop that from happening. He could have given him some type of force shield so the, the stones bounced off a shield and not touched him. God could have done that. He didn't do that. Stephen's face lights up like that of an angel. They see the radiance in his face. And Stephen says, don't lay this to their account. And something happened there that God did not cause those people to stone Stephen, but God permitted those things to happen to Stephen for a grander purpose. And who was it that was converted because of that experience? It was a major factor in Paul, yes, Saul becoming Paul, his conversion. It just aided him. It aided him. It aided him. And then on the Damascus Road, he was ready for an intervention for conversion. And we talked last week about life expectancy. See, God has a larger plan. He wants eternal salvation for all people. Eternity. Not 75, 100, 120 years. He wants eternity. Stephen was already one of those who's eternally secure. Through that action, God permitted to happen, but didn't initiate. He reached Paul. And how many has Paul now reached through history for God's kingdom? I think hundreds of millions, if not billions, will be saved because of the writings of Paul in the New Testament. Well, too, unlike war, you have soldiers going into war to protect their country from being invaded and saving the lives in the long run. If the World War II people didn't go out and fight, <clears throat> That's right. then they would have taken over our, our whole country and more lives would have been destroyed. So... Everyone's in, in this war, and God sees the big picture that there's going to have to be, I guess they call it casualties of war. Um, there's going to have to be some deaths in the protecting of a larger purpose. And that's where the trusting in the commander comes in. But if God is the source of shooting his own troops because they don't uh, keep a certain rule, then we really can't trust a commander like that, can we? No. Job, it says in the lesson that Job didn't have the advantage of knowing how things would turn out. That's what it says. Job didn't have the advantage of knowing how things would turn out. I think there's, tr- there's a truth and a, and a not-so-truth in that statement. I think it's probably true. He didn't, underst- didn't have the knowledge of knowing how his temporal life would turn out, that he would have his health back, his wealth back, and have more kids. I don't think he knew that. But could he, and might we even say should he, have the knowledge that there was a Redeemer coming that would ultimately defeat sin and death, and that would be an eternal hope? Could he have had that hope? I think that was reasonable for him to have. So, so, I, so there's a truth that he didn't know temporally what was going to happen. And sometimes that's us. But we can always understand that in the long run, there is a victory and we can have eternal hope. Fourth paragraph. Um, Even if he will kill me, I will trust him. It's another version of the same text. What a powerful affirmation of faith. With all that has happened to him, Job knew the very possible... That very possibly the final thing, the only thing that hadn't happened to him, death could come, and God would would could cause it too. Yet even if that happened to Job, Job would die trusting in the Lord anyway. What was the basis of this trust? That's the big question. Basis of this trust is the is this trust that Job had different in 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 any way in quality than the trust that the Branch Davidians had in David Koresh or the trust that the people's temple cult followers had in Jim Jones when they drank the Kool-Aid. These people trusted their leader and were willing to die for their faith. Is their trust different? Yeah, they were brainwashed. Well, much of the world claims Christianity. I'm going to suggest to you that trust is trust. That it was the same. The actual action of trusting was the same. What was different in it was in whom they trusted was different, not the actual quality of trust. 
And this is, uh, this is, of course, these cult leaders exploited the capacity of people's to trust. They exploited it, got people to trust the untrustworthy. But the capacity to trust is that very capacity, and we see it. And this is an important thing to recognize. Just because you see somebody trusting someone else with their life, willing to give their life for a cause, doesn't mean that that's an action of the Holy Spirit working there. Doesn't mean that that's a godly um, uh, process happening there. People can trust others that don't deserve or merit trust. Does that make sense? It's a human thing. Yes. This is why it's important. We learn to discern, to think for ourselves, to examine the evidences, to tell the difference between God's true methods and those of the liar. One of the key discernments, key, keys to discernment, truly, truly, is understanding God's law as design law and recognizing that imperialism is a fraud. And if you see people on any religion, including Christian religion, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church, anybody using Satan's methods, you can know it's a fraud. What are Satan's methods? Well, the beastly system of revelation, I think we all know the beastly system is not godly. It's beastly. And the beastly system uses certain methods as described in Scripture. What are the methods? Coercion. Coercion, Either sanctions, no one can buy or sell, or killing. We'll kill you if you don't do it this way. We use the power of the state to impose artificial consequences to pressure and coerce you to do it our way. Do you know how many Christians teach this is what Jesus is going to do? He's coming back with a rod of iron to judge the nations, and he's going to use his divine power to inflict pain and suffering, to make them pay and punish them. This is beastly. And many are going to say, this is our God, we've waited for him. We Yes. Um, in Isaiah 5, uh, starting at verse 4, this is God speaking about his vineyard or his church, whichever way you want to look at it. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. So how was it destroyed? By God destroying it? He just removed his protective hand, and what happens when we... And, and the hand is removed because we choose to not stay engaged with him. And he, he gives us the freedom for that choice, and destruction happens. How many Christians today, though, are willing, today, right here in America, to use the methods of coercion, the power of the state, to achieve their goals? But I'm going to say this. We cannot win God's cause by using Satan's methods, even if the doctrine or teaching is actually true to Scripture. Uh, Let's, example, baptism by immersion. Most of us in here would agree that's how the scripture teaches it. Baptism by immersion, not sprinkling. We can't win people to Christ by using the state to coerce people and fine them and imprison them if they don't get baptized by immersion. We can't do that. It won't work. Even if they are baptized by immersion, it has no benefit, right? You following me? Same thing's true for any form of worship. See, what is it that God wants? He wants our love and trust. That's what he wants. He wants us to love and trust him, which when we do, when we truly love him and trust him, that's transformation. We open our heart. The spirit comes in. We're renewed. We get new heart and right spirit. All those different processes, which are really a reality inside the mind, heart, and, and character of the believer. But what do the methods of force, threat, and coercion do inside the heart and mind of, a, of an intelligent being? Does it, does it bring love and trust? No, it causes fear and distrust and rebellion. Thus, we have, when we teach this stuff, we actually close people off from actually experiencing what God wants for them. Somebody online has a comment? Uh, Jake, isn't trust without evidence just blind faith? Ultimately, yes, even if it is trust in the right person. If you, if you trust without any evidence, even if that person is trustworthy, it's a blind trust, an un, un, unsupported trust. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And God's methods are the methods of truth and presented in love, leaving people free. That's the only way he can win the hearts. Tuesdays, second paragraph, maybe it's the first paragraph. What an interesting line to follow that came before. Even if Job were to die, even if God killed him, Job still trusted in his God for salvation. Though on one level, 
It's a strange contrast. On another, it makes perfect sense. After all, what is salvation other than liberation from death? And what is death, at least for the saved, other than a quick moment of rest, an instant sleep, followed by resurrection to eternal life? Several serious problems if you're a thinking person here. Several serious problems if you're a thinking person. You're actually thinking, wait a second. Um, First, is salvation, think about what salvation is. This is kind of very, very, but think your way through it. Liberation from death. To be sure, those who experience salvation will not die eternally. That's to be sure. Christ died to free those who live all their lives enslaved by the fear of death, Hebrews 2.14. That's true, too. But is the primary meaning of salvation the same thing as avoiding death? No. That's the subtlety here. It's a very subtle little insu- in- insinuation. Je- and Jesus said, life eternal is that you will not die. You will know me. Oh, okay. You mean he didn't say life eternal is that you will not die. He didn't say that, did he? That you will know me. It's a big difference. What, what is the difference? There is a definite connection between not knowing God and dying and knowing God and living. There's a definite connection. What is the plan of salvation saving us from? Think this through. What is it saving us from? Under the imposed law model, The plan of salvation is saving us from death, from the punishment of sin, the infliction of the ruler. That's why they say salvation is avoiding death, because we're going to avoid the penalty. I think that, you know, if you really love God and you love what he's doing in your life, the things he's releasing from you that were holding you captive, the things he's he's growing in you that are making you blossom and bloom as a you know, a really unique and capable and balanced person, <coughs> even if you, when you died, that was it. There was no eternal life. Your right. lifespan would have been worth living that way. That's true. I, I, I agree completely. I still want to get uh, unpack this, though, this idea. Say, salvation is not merely avoiding death. That's the penal view. It's the punishment. We avoid death. If you avoid death, then you're saved. Save. If you don't die, you're saved. That's not what it is. See, it's saving us from sin. What is sin? What's the primary element of sin? Deviation from God's design, living out of harmony from his construct. And what is the primary reason that happened? What caused it? Selfishness. Deviation. Uh, Review and Herald, January 9, 1886. Eve believed the words of Satan. And the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both her and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children to transgressors. Remember, we've gone into this many times. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. You're in a loving relationship, and you believe a lie that your spouse is cheating. Even if it's not true, if you believe they're a cheat, love and trust gets broken. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust, I don't trust you anymore. I'm afraid. I'm afraid you're going to bring me a disease. afraid you're going to cheat. I'm afraid you're going to be with somebody else. Uh, it results in fear and selfishness. Survival of the fittest. Got to watch out for me. And that results in acts of sin, self-centered behaviors. Thus, life eternal is knowing God, which destroys the lies that were believed, wins us back to trust. And we open the heart and trust. The spirit comes in and renews us. Thus, we are not saved from an afflicted penalty of death. We are saved from a condition of being that is out of harmony with how God constructed life to work. Salvation is healing and fixing what's broken in us. That's what salvation is. And yes, it's true, we won't die when that happens. Would it be good news that we get to live eternally with God if God was the cosmic executioner? No. (laughs) Which is what is taught in almost all versions of Christianity in the world around And then it said, after all, what is salvation other than liberation from death? And what is death, at least for the saved, other than a quick moment of rest and an instant sleep followed by a resurrection of eternal life? Does anybody see a problem with this at all? Do you see what they've done? The wicked are liberated from that death. That's exactly right. The wicked are liberated from the death of sleep. Yeah, all are raised, one resurrection to the other. They, this is what happens constantly when people don't clarify and they mix things. So you'll see this in those who, who want to believe God kills. 
and God punishes sin. They will take first death experiences, which are just the sleep death that they've said here, but they will at times equate them as the eternal death, like they're doing here, and they mix them up so they can't have clarity. They're confused. You have a hand up over here? No. Okay. Wednesday's lesson. The world has been committed to Christ, and through him... Um, has every blessing uh, from God in the fallen race. He was the redeemer before he was, uh, before, as after his incarnation. Last Sabbath afternoon, I uh, had the opportunity of Bible discussion with some friends at Kirsten's home, and it was very enlightening. Uh, I was reminded how our assumptions set up frames and constructs for our beliefs that lead us to conclusions about God. And if our assumptions about God's designs and his laws are incorrect, we view God much more in, in Satan's light than in God's true light. And so one of the ideas put forth by a very intelligent and passionate gentleman last week was the idea that Satan is the ruler of earth and that Christ had to overcome Satan's legal status and rights. The argument was that God had to be fair to Satan as the right ruler of earth and had to respond to Satan's claims. It was suggested that Satan is the ruler of earth and had legal claim because of passages like this one, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdoms of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. It was further argued that Satan was called by Jesus the ruler of this world, Therefore, he must be the ruler of this world because Jesus said he was the ruler of the world. All this legal perspective is based on multiple false assumptions. First, let's actually see what Jesus said. John 12, 31 and 32. Now it's time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw unto me. Satan, Jesus referred to as the prince of this world. What does it mean? Is Jesus here declaring that Satan has some legal rulership rights? Or is Jesus referring to Satan as the prince of this world of selfishness, this world of sin, decay, death, and pain, that all the suffering and sickness we see in the world stems right back to the father of lies, and this is his handiwork. So this isn't a legal status. It's a status of, of actual um, Satan's ownership of his conduct and choices. His yeah, his kingdom, exactly. When Jesus used the term, when he said, like, in other words, when Jesus used this term world, was he referring to territory and legal property rights? I don't think so. When he said, I have overcome the world, was Jesus referring to territory? My kingdom is not of this world. And my kingdom is not of this world. Was he saying that I don't own this world? That I'm not the creator and builder? Was he saying that? A physical matter and so forth and so on? No, he was saying, I don't, I am not the creator of selfishness, deceit, lies, pain, suffering, death. So this is functional, not, um, not a territorial. Unfortunately, there was an assumption that failed to see that, took it very concretely, thought it was territorial and had some legal rights and therefore saw very much of what was happening in the plan of salvation as a legal process to, to address Satan's legal claims. Further, it was stated by this very passionate person that when Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world, he was able to do that because it, they were his to offer. Is that true? You can read scripture where Satan says, all the kingdoms of the world I offer you, and it not be true. This was not evidence that Satan's, these kingdoms were Satan's to offer. This was evidence of Satan's delusional, egomaniacal perspectives and his distortions of reality that he's trying to get others to believe. He's trying to deceive Christ and to take it. So here's, here's the Zarevages, and she quotes out of the quote you were going to do, so we'll read it here. Zarevages 129-130. When Satan declared to Christ, the kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me, and to whomever I will give it, he stated what was true only in part, and he declared it to serve his own purpose of deception. Satan's dominion was that wrested from Adam, but Adam was a vice regent, excuse me, vice gerent of, of the creator. His was not an independent rule. The earth is God's, and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hand, Christ still remained the rightful king. 
Thus the Lord said to King Nebuchadnezzar, here's the Daniel quote, the most high ruleth in the kingdoms of men and give it to whomever he will. Sometimes versions say set up rulers and so forth. Um, does that have any implication for what happened this week? Satan can exercise his usurped authority only as God permits. When the tempter offered to Christ the kingdom and glory of the world, he was proposing that Christ should yield up the real kingship of the world and hold dominion subject to Satan. So, do we, did Satan ever have a legal right or claim to the planet Earth? Never. There was never a legal issue or a legal consequence or a legal fact that Christ ever had to answer in the great controversy. However, Christ did need to remove Satan from the perceived position he held in the minds of intelligent beings. That's why he said, I, when I'm lifted up, will draw all unto me. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world be cast out. Cast out from where? From a legal position? No. From a position of affection. From a position of fondness. From a position of trust. From a position of reliability in the hearts, minds of intelligent beings. That's where he's cast out. And if you read other places in, in the Tsar of Ages, it's that when, uh, when, Christ was crucified. Satan revealed himself as a murderer and all affection for him was lost in heaven. He was cast out. And in that earlier quote, you said that they, you know, angels were waiting for God's justice and lightning bolts to be cast out from heaven. At the cross, that, that just reality came to bear. The entire argument of Satan having some legal status, ownership rights, is an argument that rests... It's predicated, it's built upon Satan's lie about God's law. That its whole theory is. Thus, we hold that premise, we actually have a difficulty in coming to understand reality, and we have distortions in understanding Scripture. Understand also, Satan could not, could never have been. Even today, had God even wanted him to, Satan could not have been the legal a recipient of earth. Why? Because when you understand how God's laws work, God's laws are the laws of gravity, the laws of nuclear forces, the laws of physics, the laws that, that, that keep the blood pumping in your heart. Satan cannot control those laws. He has no energy to put in, no ability to manage it. The whole creation would fall apart if they were put in Satan's hands. It would disintegrate. Even if God wanted to hand it over to him, he couldn't do it. But that requires we come back to design law. If you want a scripture for that, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things were created by him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. To surrender that, creation would have disintegrated. That's reality. It's a higher order thinking than a rules-oriented thinking. Boy, it's some really neat texts in Thursday. We'll see, jump through them. It asks us to go through and find the hope listed in the various texts. I think we have about three minutes, maybe two to three. The lesson lists a number of these texts. Um, it's uh, Genesis 3.15, the classic, which is going really fast. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Her offspring will crush your head. Notice the hope. The hope is not in a legal payment. The hope is that the child of the woman is actually going to destroy the enemy. The enemy is going to be destroyed. That's the hope. Uh, Genesis 22.8, Abraham said, God himself provide the lamb for the burnt offering of my son. And the two of them went on together. What is the hope? God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, as, G- as uh, John the Baptist said, the lamb of God who takes away the penalty and punishment for sin. Is that, what, is that what John the Baptist said? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, takes away our sinful condition. That's the hope. We have a, we have a lamb coming who's going to fix the problem, Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the creatures in the blood, and I've given it to make atonement for yourself in the altar and the blood that makes atonement for one's life. What's the hope? What law lens are you looking through? Imposed law, atonement means at one all things back under one head, unity, reconciliation. What is causing the fractured in God's creation that, that, that fractures his creatures, his adult creatures from him as he designed for our original unity, there's a fracture. Is that, is that brokenness, that fracture in our relationship coming originating from somewhere in God? No, it's originating somewhere in us. Thus Christ came to fix what, what's wrong in us so that we can be reconciled or reunited, reunited at one with God again. The blood represents 
When they say kill, that means you could be killing the old character and renewing the new character. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's crucifying self. I'm die daily. Paul talks about. Yeah. So what does the blood represent? The blood represents the life. In this case, the life of Jesus, which destroys one, the lies that wins us to trust and is a new perfect human character that we partake of. We become partakers of the divine nature. We're back at one in heart and mind. Um, Galatians. We, we, we talk about this one. be the last one. Galatians 2.16. Now that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ, so we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. What is the hope? What law lens are you looking through? What does the word justified mean? It means, very simply, to be set right. That's all it means, to be set right, to be put right. When you justify the margins on your Word document, you're putting things out of harmony in order, in harmony. So what, what was wrong that sin caused that the plan of salvation sets right? What's wrong was the nature of man. We were changed to be fear, fear-ridden and self-centered. We're out of harmony. We need hearts that are set right. So it says, Abraham's natural heart, natural heart of is enmity towards God, but Abraham's natural enmity towards God was changed such that Abraham trusted God. His heart had been set right. And once he trusted God and his heart was set right, he was recognized as justified or righteous. There is nothing legal about justification. All the legal constructs are predicated on first accepting Satan's view of God's law. Thus, the entire penal legal view of salvation is a lie that traps Good people in a form of godliness, but has no power to change them. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to do what we could never do, to restore in the species human your original design of love. We open our hearts now, and you promise that when we do, that the Spirit will take all Christ that has achieved and reproduce it in us. And we ask now that, that it will no longer be I that live, but Christ lives in me, that we might become partakers of the divine nature to love you and others more than self. We pray in your holy name. Amen.